2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast. That's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on piercelguero.com. Now, on with the show.
1: Welcome to The Blue Barrel, a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian Studies and Health Humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. In this episode, I sit down with Kin Chong, a scholar of contemporary Buddhism at Moravian University. We talk about his research on a Chinese-American community healer who happens to be his father. We discuss how his father's practice raises challenging questions for scholars and reveals gaping holes in current academic approaches to Buddhism. Along the way, we talk about how code switching between different ontologies is a feature of life for Asian-Americans, and hear Kin's father conduct a blessing ritual. Enjoy. And subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. Welcome, Kin. Good to see you, Pierce. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't you take a minute just to introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe a little bit about your current position and what you're up to these days in in your academic life.
0: Sure. I'm Associate Professor of East and South Asian Religions at the Moravian University. I'm in the global religions department and I research and teach contemporary Buddhism. And so I find myself interested in Buddhism and mindfulness. I find myself interested in Buddhist ethic, the relationship between Buddhists and capitalism and economics and also Buddhism and healing. So those are some of my teaching and research interests.
1: I often like to ask our guests about their background, about how they became interested in Buddhism and or Asian medicine. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how you first were exposed to these practices and ideas. Sure.
0: My father has always been interested in healing. And so I want to say one of the major things that got me interested in healing was practicing Qigong with him in high school. The senior year of my college degree at NYU, I took a course on the theory and practice of Zen Buddhism. And the teacher I had was late Louis Nordstrom was an ordained Soto Zen priest. I read books on Zen Buddhist philosophy and it made me think, oh, this is actually a quite interesting on a philosophical level because I majored in philosophy, the analytic tradition, NYU, and I never was exposed to philosophy outside the Anglo-American context. And so that made me started having intellectual interests in Buddhism. And it was not until i did graduate work that I began a personal practice Buddhist sitting meditation.
1: So I'm trying to remember, Kin, where we first met. I know that we interacted with each other in various Philadelphia area Buddhist studies events. And I remember finding out at some point about the fact that your father was a community healer or did a healing connected with Buddhism in Brooklyn. And I just remember being really fascinated by this and I think we connected around that and we wound up doing some collaborations together. And I want to talk about all of that, but I guess a good place to start would just be for you to tell us a little bit about your dad and about what it was like growing up with him and what kinds of practices he was involved in that you remember from your childhood. Yeah, get us started with a little bit of that backstory.
0: Yeah, sure. I would say that I grew up with my dad practicing Chinese medical arts. He only started showing an interest in learning about and using Buddhist healing after my academic study of Buddhism in graduate school. To go back to the beginning of my father's story, he has four major teachers of self-cultivation practices. he was pretty young in Guangzhou, China. He had a teacher of martial arts, and they had such a close relationship, they kept in touch. For quite a while, even after my father had immigrated to New York City, that was my father's first exposure to learning self-cultivation practices, and he was so interested in it. Even when he was young, he taught his friends martial arts, and I gave him a lot of social capital. Some of his friends still keep in that he keeps in touch with now. Some of them that are in the New York City area are still visiting him yeah. and learning healing, learning Tegel Now that they're in their sixties. So that's his first teacher. His second major teacher in the healing methods would be a co worker in New York City in a garment factory. So basically, like a sweatshop that my father, my mother, and my father's co worker worked in. And you know, this co worker used to be a medical doctor in China, left because of the communist party, but he was trained in acupuncture, he was trained in moxibustion, so many things that he imparted the knowledge that these healing techniques to my father. And so I think that's the second major teacher that my father had, and he still uses that today. But I grew up with him using that on himself, on his relatives, including my grandmother. There was an episode that strikes me because my grandmother had a stroke that left half her face paralyzed. And the doctor said prognosis was not good. We just have to wait and see. And there's little that the advanced medical technology of the US healthcare system can do for my grandmother. And so my father... Learning how to use that acupuncture machine from his coworker was able to bring that machine to my grandmother's home every day, every night after she got off work. And after a few months, my grandmother's face was back to normal. So that was one major episode I remember. Like that's from his second teacher. The third major teacher is relative. So it's the brother of his brother-in-law. So I called him my uncle. My uncle learned qigong in Southern China. And then when he came back to the U.S., taught some of his relatives, including my father. And that was when I first started practicing myself. And so that exposed me to self-cultivation practices, the practice of qigong. And then I would say the fourth major teacher that my father has is another co-worker, a different co-worker in the garment factories. And this person used to be in the Shaolin Buddhist temple. And Shaolin is most famous for their martial arts, but they're also well-known within China for their medical arts. And so I remember my father copying down these herbal formulas from his co-worker, and he made it his own ointments and liniments. And so those are the four major teachers. And finally, I have to say my father is a major teacher for himself. He's an autodidact. So he reads, he watches YouTube videos, he listens to radio programs. And so he does everything he can to teach himself new healing techniques.
1: Yeah, thanks for walking us through that. As you're talking, as you're describing this kind of intersection of qigong and traditional medicine and self-cultivation and the Shaolin medical arts, to me, it seems to be pointing us to a fairly common lived experience in Chinese culture and in history and also today. Your father was part of both of family networks, but also local networks of Cantonese-speaking Chinese Americans and also connected with China and drawing all of these threads together. But this, I think, presents some theoretical challenges for scholars sometimes to really get a handle on this, whether you call it syncretism or hybridity or bricolage or braiding, all kinds of different frameworks that scholars have come up with to talk about these sorts of interweaving of these kinds of separate threads. And I guess one of the things I think Chinese culture has taught me is that, you know, we we gain something by separating them out and studying them independently. But then we also need to remember that they're never actually separate from one another in practice in China, that there's a whole sort of entangled history and practice to all of these. And I'm wondering if, first of all, whether you agree with what I'm saying. And then secondly, how are we able to think about the role of Buddhism in that interconnected body of practices?
0: I agree with that. I find that textbooks on Chinese religions, these textbooks somewhat represent the field or maybe represent the field a few years before these books were published. And I see that textbooks have changed over the past few decades. Scholarship has gone kind of a little back and forth from Chinese religions as something unified to a period, I want to say about three or four decades ago where Chinese religions are separate into strands of Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and maybe folk or popular religion. And I, I see the field as going back to maybe not unified, but the complexity of those strands that's really hard to untangle. And so I agree with what you said. And to think about Buddhism's role in this, I can talk about my father. He doesn't identify as a Buddhist when he teaches to his students or his patients he would say something like, Buddhism teaches this and that. And sometimes he would add, thousand teaches this and that. And recently I've heard him made a connection to Christianity teaches this and that. And so he's most concerned with healing and he it will draw upon anything in his religious healing toolbox in order to help relieve or cure any ailments that he or his student or his patients have. And he is less interested in identifying as a Buddhist or as Taoist or something else. So he's interested in practice. He's interested in results. And he's less interested in making a coherent sense of how health and healing world works. And even if scholars find contradictions, including myself, I, I will find some contradictions, whereas my father is not interested in those questions.
1: Yeah, there's so many things you just said that I want to come back around to. So I, I guess the first place to start would just be to maybe clarify or add some detail to what are some of the specific interventions that your father practices that are coming from a Buddhist context, or whether it's Shaolin or other other Buddhist traditions, what are some of the specific healing methods that he employs that we might hold up as being examples of buddhist therapies or interventions
0: so one that i would consider buddhist include chanting to the medicine buddha chanting to kundi bodhisattva chanting to guan yin he has asked me to help him secure these cups in taiwan and in china these are cups that are inscribed with the great compassion mantra on the side and so these cups when you put water in them because of the power of the mantra on the cups, uh, the water has healing properties. So he uses that for himself and also gives the water to his patients, students. He also practices a light release ritual. Typically we see this in temples. Someone can go to a Buddhist temple and purchase typically small animals like turtles or goldfish, maybe birds for a small amount of money. So when the person purchases. This from the temple, then they release the animal back into the wild. And that, should, that type of ritual cultivates good merit, karmic merit. And many times that merit is used towards healing. So that is a healing ritual, Buddhist healing ritual that my father not only practices himself, but also prescribes to his students and his patients. And he has done what I would call a modification based on his working class status to this ritual. Because if you go to a temple, the least expensive animal can buy maybe 50 cents or a dollar. But he has invented his own practice that he prescribes, which is to purchase brine shrimp eggs and then hatch those brine shrimp eggs and then release those into a local body of water that's not near a Buddhist temple. And he tells his students and patients to do this on the birthday of Guanyin Bodhisattva. Yin Bodhisattva, Guanyin Pusa. So this is something that he's developed. And his logic is that the cost per life release drops dramatically because brine shrimp eggs are really inexpensive. You can buy tens of thousands of brine shrimp to hatch for maybe $12. So there's this kind of logic of number of lives released is equal to the amount of karmic merit gained. So that's examples of some of the Buddhist healing practices that he does.
1: So I've always noticed how there is a strong emphasis in Chinese Buddhist texts about doing good acts for other people, specifically alleviating the suffering of other beings, and often specifically in some kind of medical way, contributing medical supplies or funding to hospitals, for example, or these kinds of activities that are seen as leading to better karma and directly from there to better health. And then you can do these rituals to transfer that merit from yourself to other people. So for example, when my students and I were doing an ethnographic project in Philadelphia at a Chinese Buddhist temple in Chinatown, we saw that there was a practice where the temple goers would chant the Great Compassion Mantra, and they had these cards that had these circles printed on them, and they would check off one circle for each rendition of the mantra. And so when the card was filled and it would be maybe representing a hundred petitions of the mantra, these temple goers would collect these cards over time and they could be used as karmic currency. For example, a common practice was when somebody was sick, they would take their filled-in cards and burn them in this offering a of fire as payment to reduce the karmic burden of being sick. And so it's interesting in Chinese culture, I think there's this real sort of transactional idea about how karma works and also maybe a financial metaphor that is operating behind it?
0: Definitely. From what I understand, the Buddha himself tried to avoid questions about karma
1: because it's not a straightforward
0: equation. I also want to say that my father thinks about karmic causes of disease along with other causes of disease and he doesn't find any contradiction. them and so as a religious healer he thinks he's like tinkering with the patient so he's just trying to use different techniques and typically he doesn't prescribe the life ritual release practice until later until after he's tried a couple of other things that fail to work and so my understanding is my father feels like okay i've tried qigong i've tried reiki i've tried some chants i've tried some herbs this is not helping then he thinks maybe there is a karmic route to, to cause the cause of disease. Or it could be an astro- astrological route. So some of the other things that he uses, a feng shui placement of objects around the houses. He asks patients and students for their birthdays and calculate their charge. He has a favorite astrologer that he follows, Peter So, this person from Hong Kong that actually has an audience in the New York City area because he sells books there. He has a radio program and he's a TV program that Chinese Americans and really the Sinophone audience around the globe has access to. And so my father sees that as one of many possible explanations of this disease that he's just trying to help, right? He's just trying to make someone feel better. He's trying to make himself feel better. I should add that part of the reason he pursues so fervently these healing techniques is because he himself has struggles with health issues continuously. Ever since as a child, he had stomach issues that still plague him today. He has skin issues. And so it's interesting for me Thinking about my father as a wounded healer, as someone that knows the pain of health ailments and physical discomfort and hopefully channels that into compassion and healing for others. On the, I guess, I don't know what to call this, the skeptical side, because I'm his son, I see that he hides he hides his personal ailments from his patients and his students. But he freely complains about his ailments to me and my mother and his close family members and so i see transformation in him ever since he became a community healer and so there's these all these complex things that i grapple with when i'm writing about him doing research and thinking through
1: his healing practices that's great i wanted to pivot over to talk about some of your research because you have written multiple pieces at this point about his practice and about the questions and in many ways, challenges to the field of religious studies that that his practice raises. And yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned this point of tension, that there's a little bit of tension between your role as a scholar and your role as a family member. Yeah, I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about other points of tension in your research that have come up like that. Your role as a son is in conflict with your desire to theorize this ethnographic material. I'm really asking myself, this question of
0: entanglement between my father and myself. So this is something that when I spoke to my department members about, one of them says, yeah, this is quite common in religious studies to write about your parents. But I think what I'm bringing here is a little different because how entwined and entangled the path of my father as a religious healer and myself as a scholar of religion. It's very complicated because he started Buddhist healing after my academic interest. Did. And I think this flips the script because much of what I read is the parents' influence on the child's religious practice, not the other way around. So I'm asking myself, and as a scholar of Buddhism that's trained in Western education system that has a certain way of understanding Buddhist ideas, I ask myself, what do I do? What should I do? When I hear my father speak about karma to his students and to his patients. And then there's this part of me that says, wait a minute, that isn't exactly what my Western trained understanding of the texts say about Buddhist karma. Do I interrupt him? Do I interrupt him there on the spot in front of the students and his patients? Do I wait to correct him in private or do I not correct him at all? And that's the tension that I continue to ask myself because I have done all three of those. And I still don't know what is the right way to go. And maybe the right way to go is to waffle between those three. I don't know. And part of that, when I'm speaking with a good colleague of mine, Russell Young, he says, this is quite a unique position you're in, Ken, because Russell is a scholar of Asian American studies. And so he's really thinking about what it means to be Chinese-American. And so he sees that my role here is uniquely Chinese-American. And I see that my research on my father not only would be interesting to Buddhist studies, but also would be interesting to Chinese-American studies, to Asian-American studies.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. Ken, thanks so much for opening up about these things. I want to ask you a question about what you think is going on when your father is doing uh, his healing practices in terms of the ontologies of Chi and spirits and karma and other kinds of things so i mean obviously your father embedded in this worldview and this in these practices that he practices is very much believing in the efficacy of these techniques and believing in the ontologies behind them but i'm wondering about you as a scholar raised in the west like what's your stance on his practices and how do you understand their efficacy
0: so i can make a distinction between what i understand is his perception of the efficacy or the ontology. When I reflect on myself and think about my perspective, for this moment, I'm going to settle on the historian of medicine, Helen, Helen Tilly, and her use of oscillation. And I see myself doing that, or I oscillate between what I understand is his explanation, which is the ontology of qi, or the ontology of Karma and spirits being reborn, or the help of bodhisattvas and buddhas in clearing away bad karma to heal. But I also oscillate among those explanations and other alternative, maybe biomedical explanations. And I can't really settle on one. So I feel like I, I flip. And I think my stance is that I don't think I will get enough evidence to settle on one because my dad uses so many different types of healing systems. For instance, Reiki will be a little different than Qi, even though he understands the language of Reiki. Do Qi is the same Chinese character, but I learned Reiki from three different teachers, and they explained that ontology in a different way. And so I'm oscillating among multiple ontologies to explain his healing. And it's a little unnerving to not find stable ground, but I think my stability is in this position, this strong... Agnostic position that there is no stability or there is no evidence that I can use to convince myself of one way of understanding the world and its ontology, because the same type of evidence can be used to justify different healing paradigms. So that's my answer for now. I don't know if it'll change in five years or in 10 years. I've been thinking about this a lot and I'm writing about this. So we'll see. We'll see in five, 10 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for, for entertaining a question like that. I've, it's something I've been thinking about too. And I recently wrote a four-part blog series on what I call meta approaches to Asian medicine, just thinking through some of these issues and also myself settling on a kind of oscillation as well, though I wasn't familiar with Helen Tilley's usage of that. Earlier, you mentioned that you learned Qigong from your father, and then you just mentioned that you learned Reiki as well. So I'm wondering, is it that you oscillate when you wear your practitioner's hat and then you wear your scholarly hat? Or are these two roles that you play intertwined more than that? Are you oscillating actually like within within the realm of the practitioner and also within the realm of the scholar? Are you constantly informing your scholarship with the ontologies of Chi or Reiki or Buddhism or so forth? I'm just curious how that oscillation works for you.
0: I think I oscillate in all sorts of ways. So within scholar, and practitioner. So as a practitioner, I oscillate among different types of things that I learn out of practice. So different teachers of Reiki and Qigong and their explanations of how healing works. Among us, as a scholar, I oscillate among different academic explanations at a distance. I try to distance myself. But between those two roles that I play, I also, they inform each other. And so there's oscillation there. And I want to add something that may be helpful to explain my physician. I'm working through this right now, and it's the use of code switching to understand medical languages. Instead of using the idea of medical bilingualism, where we can translate medical terms and medical languages neatly from one to the other and back and forth, I'm using code switching to say that in communication, people are using different snippets of medical language to best communicate their understanding of the mind, body and health and healing disease. And so the upshot of that is in code switching, no language, no one language or code is elevated as more real ontologically to capture reality better than other code. And so the oscillation that I'm doing is moving among explanations not settling on one because maybe the conclusion is there isn't one that is complete, that is stable enough to fully capture what I see and what I experience. And so I'm constantly going, flipping and just um, not elevating one, not trying to assume everything under biomedicine or under Chinese medical arts or under Reiki or under Buddhist explanations of karmic disease. so I don't know if that is one answer to what you're trying to ask me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a very interesting one too. I'm wondering if just for the sake of listeners who don't necessarily know exactly what code switching means, if you could just help us with a little bit of a definition there. I've written quite a bit about translation studies and so forth, and I I understand what you're doing with the move away from bilingualism to code switching as being a really important move. And I also see it as being, I think, somewhat related to your position as an Asian American bilingual bicultural person as well. So I'm just wondering if you could, you like thread the needle for the listeners about what all is involved behind that term code switching?
0: Sure. I, I feel like there's multiple ways code switching is used. Okay. One way code switching is used is linguists realize this interesting phenomena of multilingual speakers. So if I can speak Chinese and English and I'm speaking to other Chinese and English speakers, I will insert man into my sentence. And it's just fluid. It's not maybe even conscious, knowing that my speaker understood what I just said, Zong is Cantonese for Chinese. And so it's inserting, m- using multiple codes, and it, the c- codes doesn't have to be language. It could be dialects. It could be register. It could be just different marks of speech and communication within one unit. And, it, and that unit commonly is one sentence. It's for the audience purposes. The c- communicator knows that the audience will understand them and it can show their belonging, it could show in-group, it could show distance, out-group. There's just a lot to say about code-switching. Another very common way we use code-switching, I'm thinking of the NPR, I believe there's even a podcast on code-switching where people use a different register when they're talking to different audiences. And that's a type of code-switching where they're staying consistently in the code. And so they're speaking to let's say their employer and all their sentences and words is in one type of code, very professional code. And compared to if they're speaking to someone like, I don't know, a toddler in daycare, I don't know, maybe that's a different code that they're using with the toddler. And so this consistent, there's no flipping back and forth, but the way that I'm using code switching is within one unit you're adding, you're using multiple types of code.
1: Yeah. I think that's really helpful to move us away from terms like bilingualism and translation, which kind of prioritize the languages into code switching, where you're really prioritizing more of the sort of performative and creative nature of communication and also the agency of the communicators in positioning themselves socially and so forth using language. So I understand what you were saying to be about how you are thinking about different ontologies and sort of code switching in your own mind or maybe in your writing and also in your spoken communication about Asian medicine and Buddhism and all of these topics. But I'm wondering about your father now. He's a Cantonese speaker, uh, but yet he also is practicing a number of different practices that come from different ontological frameworks, from Buddhism, from Chinese medicine, from Reiki, etc. So is he code-switching when he talks about these practices? Even though he's only speaking Cantonese, is he switching registers or vocabularies back and forth as he talks about these different practices he does?
0: Exactly right. So my father only speaks Cantonese and Mandarin, so he does not speak English, but he code-switches within Cantonese to use the language of science to explain his understanding of feng shui when he's speaking to someone that he thinks will appreciate the language of science and kind of mix in there language of tea and chinese medical ontology and it's fascinating for me to see this happening because i understand he's using this code switching as a way to communicate the efficacy of feng shui and so it's not different types of cantonese it's not different languages even but he's using different maybe ontological frameworks and that's to me a type of code that he's using to his audience knowing that audience member would appreciate more of one code than the other and so my point there is when he does this but he's using multiple codes to explain the efficacy of feng shui placement of objects during a lunar new year to ward off disease and bring in fortune and health. He's not elevating any one code as being better able to capture reality or true code that represents what's ontologically happening in, in these object placements. He is just communicating. And so it's all those codes are on the same level.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting, Ken. It's a very like fine grained analysis of what you mean by oscillation, right? The oscillation is actually taking place like word by word, maybe, or sentence by sentence, maybe. So, I, what you were just talking about made me think of earlier in our conversation. You talked about how textbooks characterize the field of Chinese religions and and how trends in the representation of Chinese religions have changed over time. And I'm certainly not the first or the only person to say this, but these textbooks pretty much never take into account Asian American experience of religion. For example, in Buddhism, there's a lot of attention paid to the importation of mindfulness and the story involves middle-class white folks doing meditation and the experience of Asian American Buddhists who have been in this country since the middle of the 19th century, if not earlier. Is largely written out of the history of American Buddhism. Your research and your publications and bringing your father's practice to light in that way, I think, is a, a super critical intervention into the field of religious studies more generally, Asian American studies for sure, Buddhist studies maybe in particular. And I'm wondering, you know, if you can tell us in a concise way what your message for the field as a whole would be by bringing this example of your father into the dialogue with Buddhist studies more generally?
0: My message for the field of Buddhist studies would be that contemporary Buddhism is so interesting. That is what drives my research. And yet, I don't know if there really is a space for contemporary Buddhism in Buddhist studies circles. I don't feel like there's an academic space in terms of the scholarly organizations and the conferences that are happening out there. And so I would love for that space to be carved out. And that's my message to the field of Buddhist studies. For religious studies and Asian American studies, I would say for those two fields, I wish there's more attention given to diaspora practices, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans, but other other diaspora populations. I know diaspora studies, trans-Pacific studies, transnational studies are doing work on this. And so where I feel religious studies is maybe a little bit lagging behind for Asian American studies, my message specifically is that I don't see Asian American Buddhist practice as, as highlighted as much as Asian American Christians or other religious groups. And so it's something that I think might be related to the way Buddhism is presented by American media. I know there's interventions being made on this. I know Chen Han's book has done a great deal of work in bringing attention to the voices of Asian American Buddhists, and I feel like it's something that needs more spotlight because we're made invisible. My father and his practice—it's hard to fit exactly which field of study. You know, I guess does this case study belong into? And so I think it makes us rethink how. Western academic disciplines, field of studies, and categories of study are artificial categories. It might be helpful in some
1: ways, but at the same time, excludes certain populations and voices. Definitely an important intervention. So yeah, I just wanted to mention the name of the book that you were just talking about is Chen xing Han's Be the Refuge, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists that came out in 2021. And one of the few books that I can think of that have ever been published on Asian American Buddhism. Can you think of any other recent books, Ken, that have come out more recently? I can only think of
0: Duncan Williams' American Sutra 2019 about Japanese American Buddhists in the Third World War yeah. Two.
1: Yeah, great a great book as well. But it just goes to show how few publications there are in this field that relate to the Asian American Buddhist experience. And I think it's one of the reasons why your work is so important. It's not only a matter, although it is important that it's a matter of representation of including descriptions of Asian American practice within the field. But I think what we've been talking about here is it's not only about representation, it's also about the challenges that when we do take into consideration Asian American practice, the challenges to the field and to the boundaries that we've constructed and to the categories that we operate with unthinkingly And I think the example of your father just really pushes back against so many of these conventions in the field in really interesting ways. And your work is really, I think, especially exciting because of that. I don't know. Is there anything that you want to add to what we're talking about right now before we pivot over to a different topic?
0: I want to add the fact that I only came to this research because of you, Pierce, because of your work on Buddhist medicine and our informal conversations about my father and you asked me to interpret for an interview that you did on my father or a source book about contemporary buddhist medicine and so that was 2015 when i did the interview and then afterwards it made me really think this actually is an important area of study because i grew up with it i just didn't think much about it and so My PhD dissertation was on Buddhism and science, giving a Buddhist studies response to the explosion of studies on meditation and how meditation heals and affects your brain. And then after I finished that PhD, I became less interested in that conversation and became much more interested in contemporary practices that my father uh, develops and drives to students and patients. And so that started out with the, book chapter and became more book chapters. And now it's a contribution to edited volume that you and I and Susanna Dean are co-editing.
1: Yeah. I'll just say before we get into that volume, just that that interview that we conducted with your father in 2015 eventually was included in the anthology that I published in 2020 called Buddhism and Medicine, an anthology of modern and contemporary sources. It's the second volume of this Buddhism and Medicine anthology that I published with Columbia University Press. And as I remember it, we were, I don't remember where we were, but we must have been in one of our periodic get togethers that we have with Buddhist studies scholars in the Philadelphia area. And I think you were a graduate student at the time, and I was starting to put together this anthology of sources and was recruiting people to submit translations, translations of texts, as well as translations of interviews for this collection. And somehow we started talking about your father's practice. And all of a sudden, I was like, Oh my God, I got to include that. Sounds like an amazing person. Sounds like an amazing example of the kinds of practices of contemporary Buddhist and Buddhist influenced healing. And this huge gaping hole in my, in, in, at the time, in my knowledge about Buddhist medicine is the, was the practice of Asian American Buddhists. In a lot of ways, my encounters with you then. Inspired me to do more ethnographic work in the Philadelphia area, interviewing a lot of other Asian American Buddhist practitioners here in Philly and led eventually to a collaborative project with LAN doing documentary filmmaking in all of these temples in Philly. I think the influences and appreciation goes in all directions between the three of us. And for the listeners who don't know who LAN is, Go back and listen to the first episode where Lan interviews me. Lan is the producer of this podcast and is behind the scenes right now, making sure our audio quality is good. Hi, Lan.
2: Hi, check, check, one, two, one, two. Sound good. Great.
1: So yeah, Ken. back to the edited volume that you talked about, was one of the things I wanted to be sure to mention here. Like you said, you, me, and Susanna Dean, uh, anthropologist of contemporary Tibetan medicine, are putting together an edited volume that is coming out with University of Hawaii Press. And I, I wondered if maybe you wanted to talk a little bit about the chapter that you have in that volume, because it is about your father and it's about some of the issues that we're talking about here.
0: Yeah. So the edited volume is Buddhist healing in the modern world. And my chapter there is titled Buddhist healing in the community, a Chinese American healer in New York city. And so it's about my father. It's about his eclectic mix of qigong, reiki, Buddhist spells, and how he shares these practices with his immigrant community of relatives, of family, friends, students, and patients in the New York City area. And so I present how he heals and how his legitimacy as a healer actually provides legitimacy uh, for him as a teacher of religion. And I also find that this chapter hopefully will be helpful because it presents the Sinophone resources that he uses to teach himself. These resources are available to the transnational network of Chinese around the world that are interested in Buddhist healing or religious healing in general.
1: Yeah, great. Uh, It'll be the second in a series of edited volumes that I've been organizing with co-editors around different topics. And the first one was published in 2020 by University of Hawaii Press, Buddhist Healing in Medieval China and Japan that I co-edited with Andrew Macomber, who's a scholar of medieval Japanese Buddhism. And in this book that we're talking about, Buddhism and Healing in the Modern World, we're doing something Maybe similar in the sense that it looks at processes of localization and processes of interpretation and translation and so forth. But in the modern context and in this very messy, globalized, interconnected, entangled world that we live in, where, like you said, there aren't really clear distinctions or super firm boundaries between what is Asian American, what's Buddhist, what's non-Buddhist, what's tradition, what's modern, all of these categories. Yeah, so a lot of different topics, a lot of different case studies. But again, they sort of all come back around to entanglement and circulation of knowledge in really interesting and complex ways that challenge our notion of Buddhist medicine being something that's been preserved in this pristine way from ancient times, but rather presents Buddhist medicine as something that's constantly changing, something that's constantly in dialogue with contemporary society and culture. Yes,
0: Buddhist agents are responding to how medicine is spreading around the world entangled with Buddhism, tangled with other religious thoughts, beliefs and practices. So we we really want to highlight the agency of the Buddhist communities that we're writing about.
1: Yeah. And that sort of brings us right back to where we started talking about your research with your father and the importance of bringing his voice out into the public and into the field of Buddhist studies and the importance of translating his ideas and his worldview and his practices. First of all, linguistically translating it into English so that people can access the interview transcripts that we published or to access his words in your article, but then also doing this important work of translating across this practice and academic divide and really showing us, I think, how our academic categories are often not only inadequate to capture what happens on the ground, but actually can often distort our understanding of the way that Buddhism is practiced on the ground. Now that we've come back around full circle, if there's anything that we neglected to talk about or anything that you feel you want to add to the conversation before we wrap up, is there anything that's still on your mind to mention? So
0: thinking about the relationship between scholarship and practice, I think the key there is how to define practice or what is practice? What is the practice in question? So when I went to upstate New York and did quiet sitting meditation, I had no problem sharing that openly to other academics, to other colleagues in my field, to my supervisors and my professors and people that have power over me going through this academic job and career path. And that's because I see some other scholars of Buddhism share that openly, that they have a quiet sitting meditation practice. On the other hand, the practice that my father does of chanting to Buddhist deities of life release rituals, that is a different type of practice that I had to take time to feel more secure in my academic path before I allowed myself to open up and share that my father did this and to frame my father as a religious healer. I was uncertain. I was very worried about what my academic colleagues would think of me if I told them that my father was a religious healer. And by that, it's not him just doing quiet sitting meditation. It's him doing practices that what I see is cast as superstitious, as maybe going against these naturalistic interpretations of Buddhism. And so I think my point is that uh, I see academia as accepting certain types of Buddhist practices, whereas chanting to deities and releasing life for karmic merit, that would cause some, maybe some reaction. And it can be mild or it can be a rejection of my integrity as a scholar or my objectivity. All these questions about what types of religious practices are acceptable for an academic. I've been asking myself this, and I've been lucky enough to feel more privileged in my, and secure in my position to share this. But I would say 10 years ago, I would never have thought about sharing this.
1: Yeah, well, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing everything in the way that you've done. I really appreciate your candor and how much you're willing to put yourself out in public like this. I really think that the intervention that your research and your publications are making in the field are important for many reasons and this is one of the one of the main reasons that I really have appreciated your work. I think maybe a shorthand way of talking about acceptable Buddhism, this term Protestant Buddhism that Gunaratana basically introduced back in the 70s, right, where anything that Buddhists do that is legible by Protestantism or that has an analog within Protestantism is sanctioned and okay. And then all of this other stuff that Buddhism provides this whole range of different tools for people to navigate their lives and to live fulfilling lives and to be engaged in the world and to be engaged with other sentient beings. And that the myopia of scholarship to only focus on certain kinds of practices that happen to match up with Protestantism really is to the detriment of everybody. So I really appreciate your work, Kin, in that regard. I hope that your work is widely influential and that starts to make some changes in our field.
0: Thank you so much, Pierce. Thank you for your support
1: throughout all of this. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and sharing your afternoon with our listeners. And, uh, Really wish you the best of luck with everything that you've got coming up. Do you want to mention any forthcoming work or any projects that we can look forward to? I'm working
0: on a
1: book manuscript tentatively titled Religious Healer, Religion
0: Scholar, Father and Son. And so that will be the book about my
1: father's path as a religious healer and my path as a scholar of religion. Great. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on when that comes out to talk about it. And yeah, until then, Ken, I know we'll see each other around Philadelphia, but I really appreciate your work and appreciate you. And thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, before we close out, we wanted to share with the audience a recording of your father doing some kind of ritual. So we were thinking about what we could do to have his voice be on this podcast and we decided to, because it wouldn't necessarily be right to record him during a healing session with a patient because of confidentiality and so forth. And because of the personalized nature of that ritual, we thought that it would be a good idea to invite your dad out to my campus to do like a general blessing for all of the students and for the campus environment as a whole. And so we just did that a couple of weeks ago. Ken, why don't you share with our listeners maybe something about the context and the ritual that your dad is performing in this recording?
0: My dad is chanting a few different Buddhist spells. And these spells he learned from his teacher. It's a These are esoteric spells. I can't really find sc- scholarly information on these spells at the moment, and maybe that is because they're passed in secret directly from teacher to student. He also chants a spell that enlists the help of Guan Yin, the Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara. He also chants a spell that enlists the help of Kundi, the Buddha mother. And all these spells taken together, he's directing towards spirits, and animals and anything that can listen to these sounds that he's chanting because these sounds these spells will help the spirits be reborn in a better realm of rebirth and be reborn faster and so this is something that he does outside of his home every day and he chances to a small cup of water and then he disperses that water outside and anywhere that the water touches will also spread the efficacy of his chant. So if the water touches a, a larger body of water, like a creek or a pond, and anywhere that flows, that will also help spirits in contact be reborn faster and in a better way.
1: And so these, uh, like you said, these Buddhist spells or Dharani or in Chinese, zhou, are a regular part of esoteric Buddhism, you could say, and uh, a lot of people will probably be familiar with from other contexts, but these particular spells are specifically designed for us at Abington College to bless the campus as a whole. And while your father was... Doing this ritual, I thought it would be worth mentioning. He was at the pond right in the middle of the campus, scooping up the water from the pond and starting to do the spells. And uh, sure enough, I'm not exaggerating, right, Ken? There were like maybe half a dozen ducks and like, you know, four or five turtles and all these (laughs) other beings that started sort of like heading towards him in order to receive the blessings. I mean, the students that were in my uh, Intro to Asian Religions class were quite interested in it as well, but seemed like the animals were getting something out of it as well.
0: My, my impression, i may, it made me wonder if people regularly feed those animals and if it seemed like my father was just getting ready to throw food at them and the ducks and turtles were hungry and <laughs> ready to get some snacks.
1: Oh, come on, man. You're raining on my, uh, on my parade here. I was wanting to think that the spells were really that powerful that the animals could tell and they all lined up for his blessings.
0: <laughs> and, and that's exactly what my father thought. <laughs> <laughs> that reinforces the efficacy of his spell in terms of his worldview. I, I really am a strong agnostic in that what we've experienced, what we and you and your experience and my father all saw happening and that we agree upon, which is the animals came towards him.
1: All right. Well we'll oscillate back and forth in, in our interpretations of why the animals were there. But yeah, let's take a listen to the recording. <laughs>
3: ung sam pala sam pala pomala sala ma cham papahung phrasoha ung sam pala sam pala pomala sala ma cham papahung phrasoha Prasoha sam pala sam pa pomala sala ma cham papahung phrasoha ung sam pala sam pa pomala sala ma cham papahung phrasoha ung sam pala sam ma cham papahung phrasoha ung sam soha Om prung soha ungamita yuta te 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 soha om prung soha ungamita om soha 嗯, <音> wasser oh,
2: that's it for today from us at the Blue Barrel podcast this episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercealguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash bluebarrel. Until next time, be happy and be well.